Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. So let me ask you a question. Well, actually six questions. What do these people or did these people have in common? For example, Pope John Paul II, got him fixed in your mind? And the entrepreneur Steve Jobs, what in the world could they have in common? How about the singer Andrea Bocelli? And on the other hand, Oprah Winfrey, talk show host and entrepreneur. What do they have in common? Justin Bieber on the one side and Jesse Jackson on the other. The actor Jack Nicholson and the angelic voice of Celine Dion. Football player Tim Tebow and that child of the 60s, Cher. What do they have in common? Well, I think you probably have guessed by now because of the topic this morning that all of their mothers at one time or another were encouraged to or had gone to a place to have an abortion and either changed their minds or resisted the pressure to do so. None of them would have been here if their mothers had pursued that decision. Globally, this next year, 73 million, unexpe- or 73 million uh, pregnancies will end life with abortion. the World Health Organization tells us, 60% of unexpected pregnancies around the globe end in induced, not spontaneous abortion. 45% of those are unsafe because people do not have access to safe abortion or because it's illegal. And almost three out of 10 pregnancies globally whether they're expected or not, end with abortion. In America, you know the statistics. I mentioned them a couple of weeks ago. In the past 50 years, over 64 million lives have been stopped through abortion. That's 1.2 million per year. Just to put this in perspective, friends, if you look at the populations of the 50 states, start with Alabama and work down the lower 26 states, that's how many people we're talking about. If you look at the eastern seaboard from Washington, D.C., northward, all of the 12 states in the middle Atlantic and New England states. It's equivalent to a population of the nine southeastern states. We typically think of southeastern from South Carolina to Kentucky to Arkansas to Alabama and Florida. 64 million. There is a majority support today in America for abortion. The Gallup poll that was released this year, 85% say that abortion should be legal in certain or all cases. 52% of Americans say that abortion is morally right, 
whereas only 38%, only 4 out of 10, say that it is morally wrong. Pro-choice, pro-life. About 60% of our nation say that they are pro-choice. About 40% are pro-life. And you know what this has led to, of course, a political polarization in our nation. It's become a political football, a political hot potato. The top issues in our nation today, according to a recent poll, are number one, climate control and the environment, gun control, defense and terrorism, immigration, education, health care access, and race relations. Those are the top seven issues. Well, no, they're not. They're the top eight issues. Number two that I'd not mention, number two is abortion, and it is a very divisive political issue. It comes only after climate control and the environment. A Pew poll that was released earlier this year say that 80% of Democrats support abortion, whereas 62% of Republicans oppose it. Now, the reason I explicitly mentioned political parties this morning is because it has become a political issue upon which some political races are decided. Ameris poll, once again released this year, concerning the overturning of Roe versus Wade, 88% Democrats opposed it and 77% Republicans supported the overturn of it, to the point that you probably have heard recently in the Georgia Senate race this year between Herschel Walker, Heisman Trophy winner at University of Georgia professional football player, against Raphael Warnock, Republican versus Democrat. Warnock is a Baptist pastor, has been a Baptist pastor in the Atlanta area for years, and is the sitting junior senator in Georgia. He's the incumbent. And one of the key issues in Georgia has been this issue of abortion. Recently, Herschel Walker has been accused of funding the abortion of a woman in 2009, and subsequently she says that she has given birth to one of his children. And that's become a key issue in the political race. Warnock responds this way. He says, the people of Georgia need a senator who will stand with women. You see, it has come down to that. It's also become a gender issue. So how did we get here? When you look at church history, and from the very beginning, there has been some discussion, disagreement about when a life becomes a person, about when ensoulment occurs, the difference between formed and unformed life. There has been since the early days of the church some debate about that, but there is a consistency from the early church all the way to today that the church condemned abortion as a sin. Basil of Caesarea from the fourth century one of the Cappadocian fathers put it this way. You see, the hair-splitting difference between formed and unformed makes no difference to us. Whether whoever deliberately commits abortion is subject to the penalty of homicide. You see, the early church consistently said that it was a sin. Medieval church to the modern times once again debated about 
when a life became a person. Augustine made this distinction that in the early stage in the womb that ensoulment had not occurred. And it was reinforced by Aristotelian philosophy, which biologically categorized the difference between the stages in vitro. And many in the medieval and early modern church said that early abortion was not murder of a person, but it was simply the cessation of life. Still, early church, medieval church, early modern church condemned abortion as sinful. In the modern period, in the 19th and 20th century, the Roman Catholic Church and most evangelicals have come to this conclusion that personhood, personhood, not just life, begins at conception. Today, Roman Catholics oppose abortion in all circumstances. Southern Baptists have changed their position over about the last 40 years, and recent resolutions at the SBC, the meeting, oppose all abortion except those that are done to save the mother's life. United Church of Christ, Unitarians and Universalists permit abortion in almost every circumstance. Mainstream Protestants like Episcopalians, Presbyterians, USA, United Methodist Church, Evangelical Churches of the Lutheran Persuasion support abortion, but they limit the time that it can be done during pregnancy. So it's become a political issue. But you know, it wasn't polarized so much before Roe versus Wade. In fact, some political conservatives, and I remember this, and some of you do too, some political conservatives actually supported the legalization of abortion. At one time or another, Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater, and George Wallace supported legalization. And on the other hand, the earliest movements against abortion in the 30s, when it became a political issue, were led by progressives. Progressives following New Deal and great society ideals who, though they were politically liberal, were theologically conservative. They believed that birth control should be used to relieve poverty and cut the cost of social programs. And the move against abortion was led by liberals who wanted to protect the unborn with the same rights as others have civil rights. They believe this, that supporting a woman through pregnancy and giving birth at full term gave her hope and empowerment, not oppression. In fact, folks, before Roe versus Wade, there were pro-choice Republicans and there were pro-life Democrats. That is a rarity today. So what about support for abortion? How did we come here? The first wave of feminism in the, 19th, in the 20th century, led by people like Margaret Sanger, emphasized birth control, and interestingly enough, a move in the 30s and the 40s for eugenics, limiting the reproductive rights of the unfit and the feeble-minded who would become a burden on society. Sanger believed that women should be free from the bondage of marriage and motherhood. Sanger wrote in her book, The Woman Rebel, because I believe that women, that woman is enslaved in the world by world machine, by sex conventions, by motherhood and its present necessary childbearing, by wage slavery, by middle class morality, by customs and laws and superstitions. She wanted to free women from that. She opposed large families. She believed they led to poverty 
And she is quoted as having said in the book, the most merciful thing that the large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. Now, the reason I mentioned Sanger is because she, of course, many of you know, was the first leader of Planned Parenthood in 1942. The medical community and the law in the early 20th century began to seek some relief through abortion. It was outlawed in most states, but the medical community began to be concerned about the danger of illegal abortions, and they wanted to make it safe because of the high mortality rates. And they were opposed mainly by the Roman Catholic Church. Still, conservative laws were passed over the next 20 years. Five Supreme Courts and states and the District Court in D.C. recognized fetal personhood, that one can become a person in the, fetus, in, in the womb. And then there was a second wave of feminism led by such as Betty Friedan and her feminine mystique who wanted to liberate housewives from the comfortable concentration camps of suburbia. And there was, of course, as we mentioned last week, the playboy mentality that undercut moral standards of sex, marriage, and procreation upon which the home is built. Frieden then founded the National Organization of Women in 66, along with 46 other co-founders. And their aim was to bring women into the mainstream of American society on the same level as men, and they capitalized on the momentum of the civil rights movement. And they portrayed women as victims who needed to reclaim their due rights. Now, the point of this, friends, is during the 50s and 60s and 70s, the sexual revolution did what I said last week. It began to delink those key ingredients that the Bible puts together, marriage, procreation, love, and sex. And gradually, abortion was legalized in this nation. First in Colorado in 1967, it decriminalized abortions for rape and incest. In 1973, states Hawaii, Alaska, and Washington legalized most elective abortions at a woman's request. And by 72, there were 16 other states that joined Colorado to implement similar standards concerning rape and incest, so that by the time of Roe v. Wade, 20 states had legalized abortion to some degree and 30 opposed it. And of course, you know, in 1973 then, Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton affirmed the constitutional right of a woman at the federal level across the country to seek abortion, decriminalizing abortion and setting regulating standards for when it could be done during pregnancy. And of course, we all know then where we are today. Dobson versus Jackson Women's Health Organization overturned Roe v. Wade ending federal protection for abortion rights and encouraging states to regulate it. And they're allowed to do so to regulate any aspect of abortion that is not governed by federal law. I think there are six key issues as we look at this from a biblical perspective that we need to consider. First of all, this is a political and social issue today, as we've already said. It is on the one hand, the right to life of the unborn, pro-life, versus the right of the woman's choice to control her body, that is, pro-choice. It's also a biological issue. When does life begin? This is a scientific question, friends. It may be seen as a moral issue, but it's a scientific question. Most scientists agree clearly that life 
begins at conception. Pro-choice advocates who deny this run against clear scientific evidence. Life begins with conception. There's a third issue, and it's moral and philosophical. When, if ever, is it morally accepted, acceptable to terminate life? When does a, quote, fetus become a person? And for many, this is where the moral question turns. Is abortion an act of killing if it terminates life before the fetus becomes a person? That's a question that some would ask. And there are two philosophic approaches to this based on capacity. John Locke in the 17th century said that an unborn is not a person because that unborn never actualizes the capability to act independently. On the other hand, if you go back to ancient Greece, Aristotle said in it, the unborn is a person because the unborn has a potential to fulfill that capacity to act independently. Some would say there's a third position. They would say that in the early stage, a fetus is not a person and can be aborted without moral guilt. In the later stage, that fetus becomes a person and there is more moral culpability if it is aborted. But still, that is a pro-choice position. That is still a pro-choice position. There's much disagreement in that position about when we determine when a, when a fetus becomes a person. Is it based on organ development? Is it based on DNA sequencing? Is it based on the behavior of the fetus? Can the fetus then consciously interact? Does it have rational thought? Can it feel pain? And some would say it depends on ensoulment. Has one become a soul that unifies all of the other activities of the person? There's a legal issue. Does a fetus have the same rights of protection as a person outside the womb? There's a fifth issue, and of course, these are the extenuating circumstances. Gallup poll of 2018 said this, that people looked at whether or not abortion should be done because of a woman's life being at risk. 83% of the people said yes, only 15% said no. There are other issues associated with a woman. What if she doesn't want to have the child? And there, most people say that's not a substantial reason. 53% of the people said no. But there are other special situations, and we know this. What about rape or incest? 77% said that, that abortion should be allowed. What about fetal deformity or viability? 56% said that if the fetus is going to be mentally incapacitated, that it should be allowed. If there's a life-threatening illness that will follow an almost certain death, 67% said it should be allowed. And there's a sixth issue, and that is this. Does the Bible address the issue of abortion? What does the Bible say? So it leads me then to lay out very, as clearly as I can what I understand to be the two positions on this, the more progressive position and what, frankly, I understand to be a biblical position. The pro progressive position makes biblical arguments. First of all, the progressive that advocates, that is pro-choice, advocates abortion, would say that we're all created in God's image, and a woman is created in God's image, and every woman has the capacity to behave like and to relate to their creator. Each woman has equal dignity before God. 
equal capacity and autonomy to make decisions for herself. And her conscious conscience is sacrosanct, accountable to God only and sovereign, God's sovereignty, accountable to no one else. So there's the issue of being created in the Imago Dei. Secondly, they would say that the Bible says nothing. It says nothing specifically about abortion. And they make this point. The ancient world practiced abortion and had nuanced rules governing its practice. And if abortion were immoral, certainly the Bible would have addressed the issue if it were, in fact, not right. They would say this, that pro-life advocates proof text, pull out special text, and weave together arguments out of context to fit their presuppositions. But the Bible does not address the issue of abortion. They would say this, there are only two passages that touch on this subject indirectly, and those passages in favor, in fact, lean toward pro-choice. Exodus 21, the injury to a pregnant woman. When a pregnant woman is standing by and her husband is in a fight with another man, if she becomes embroiled in it and the other man hits her and she miscarries and the fetus dies, a fine should be imposed. But if she is injured, lex talionis applies. That is eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And if she's killed, then the guilty man who hits her must be executed. The logic is this then. You see, the fetus, destruction of a fetus, only involves a fine. But the killing of a woman then may end in execution. In other words, the woman is more valuable than the fetus. Numbers 5. Second text, the test for infidelity of a woman who is accused of adultery, but there have been no witnesses. There have been witnesses, it's a foregone conclusion what would happen. She would be stoned. But if there are no witnesses, there's a test for infidelity if the husband is jealous. The priest is to give her a bitter drink and she is to drink it. And that bitter solution, if it causes a miscarriage or, if you will, an abortion, she is guilty. So, in fact, the Bible supports the idea of chemical abortion. There's a fourth issue. The progressives would say that the biblical view of personhood, that the Bible portrays persons as complex, autonomous individuals who can make independent decisions, and a fetus is nothing like that kind of person, that the Bible never suggests that it is. They would say, fifthly, that there's a false charge made by the pro-life advocates that abortion is murder in violation of the Sixth Commandment. And they would cite that this is, in fact, not technically murder. There's no biblical evidence that the fetus has a legal or moral standard, a status as a person, and therefore the end of that life is not murder. Sixthly, they would argue about Jesus' advocacy for women that he empowered and he commended women with equal dignity as men. And there's no question about that, that it's true. The Samaritan woman, he then encourages her to become an evangelist in her village of Sychar. Mary Mag Magdalene, who had been exercised of seven demons, was made the first messenger of his resurrection. The Syrophoenician woman he commends as having great faith. The widow in the temple who gives her widow's might, he commends her as having great faith. You see, he commends and supports women. 
But he also values their, and here's the key word, choice. Even when the choice is unconventional. So the woman with the issue of blood should have never touched him, but he does not condemn her for making that choice. Mary of Bethany, who pours out the ointment freely and is accused of wasting it, she, he confirms and commends her for the choice that she has made to anoint him, and in fact, commends her to all of Christian posterity, that all believers will, will honor her for this. There's a seventh issue, and that's biblical compassion for the poor and distressed. After all, the Old Testament in Proverbs says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. And the point that they make here with Jesus imploring us to serve those that are the least among us is that 75% of the people, women who seek abortion, are from low income, half of them below the poverty line. There are a couple of other arguments. The temple of God argument, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 Corinthians 6, a female's body, female believer's body is the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and she alone is accountable to God for maintaining that temple and using it for his purpose. And then finally, there's the argument of biblical freedom from John 8. Christ came to bring us the truth, and if we know the truth, it will make us what? Free. It'll make us free indeed. And a woman should be completely free to make her own decisions independently before God. I think that summarizes one side. There are social arguments that they would make. Justice and freedom, the right to privacy and prevention. Justice based on legal rights like racial justice, environmental justice. Every woman has a right to control her own body autonomously. Freedom from oppression. They would say that the loudest opponents to abortion are white, straight, Christian men. You see, the pro-life movement, they would say, is this. It, there's a strong element of control that wants to keep women in their place, and we live in a male-dominated, chauvinistic society that must be deconstructed and liberated. They're logical arguments. The right to privacy. You see, this is a personal choice. What a woman chooses to do, it is a private decision. And the best person to make that decision is the person that governs her own body. It is the woman. And if she believes that it is not immoral to have an abortion, then it's okay. And then there is a logical argument of prevention and safety. Bans on abortion never stop abortion. They only put women at risk for seeking illegal and unsafe abortions. Does the Bible speak to abortion? I believe it does. I believe there is a, and more than one probably, biblical position on this. What I'm about to say is my understanding of what the Bible says. I don't think there is the biblical position on it because you do not see the word abortion in there. No, it has to be constructed as many of our theologies do. But let me give you what I think the Bible says. The Imago Dei, yes. The unborn are created in the image of God as well. They are created as new life a recreation of God assisted by human procreation. Each new life has equal dignity before God and a right to exist and come to the point where they can act independently. 
Each new life in the womb is valued in God's sight equally with life outside the womb. And there is a sanctity of life, regardless of how we label it, whether we label it a zygote or a fetus, a life, a human being, or a person. I think, secondly, abortion ignores God's role in procreation. You see, it treats this as a merely biological process, and it ignores God's divine hand in it. Eve, with the birth of her first son, says, I have brought forth a man with the help of the Lord. God attends and guides the growth of every life. Job said this, Did not he that made me in the womb make my servant as well? And did not one fashion us in the womb? And of course you know what Jeremiah said, that the Lord knew him in the womb. Isaiah, the chapter after which we read this morning from Isaiah 43, Isaiah 44 says this, The Lord made thee and formed thee from the womb. And a little later in 44, the Lord thy Redeemer who formed thee from the womb says, I am the Lord that makes all things. I believe that the Lord guides and attends every pregnancy. I believe that God knows and identifies his children from the womb. I do not think that Jeremiah and Isaiah and Paul were exceptions. I think they're the rule. Isaiah 49, the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, not just formed him, but with a purpose. Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you for a purpose. Paul tells the Galatians, God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. I believe God knows and attends those in the womb, and he knows the purpose for which he has made them. I believe that abortion thwarts God's sovereignty and providence. He alone is sovereign over life and death, and he alone. Deuteronomy tells us, see now that I, I am he, there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death, and it is I who give life. You see, it is he alone who knows the destiny of every new life in the womb. And it is he alone that knows the plans that he has for him or her. The psalmist, Psalm 139, says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days of my life that were ordained for me, yet when there was not one of those days." I believe the unborn life is a person. Biblical view of humans is holistic. We don't talk about a body and a soul and a spirit. The biblical view is holistic. From the moment of God's animation of Adam, when he breathed the nephesh nephesh into, into him, he was a living soul. He did not just have a living soul. From the moment of conception, I believe, in procreation, that is, the recreation that God uses us for, I believe that the new life is a whole person. There's an Old Testament witness to this. Job says this, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? So he suggests that there is a soulful dimension to the fetus. 
Nazarites were gods from the womb to death. Samson's mother was exhorted to avoid anything that contaminated her son in the womb. Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now, now, while you are pregnant, you shall not drink wine or drink strong drink or eat any unclean thing. For you see, the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. There's New Testament witness to this idea. In the New Testament, the word that is used both for prenatal and postnatal person, brephos, is the same. So John the Baptist was brephos in the womb, prenatal. And yet Jesus, when he is in the cradle, wrapped in swaddling clothes, is called brephos, the same term. I believe that abortion sheds innocent blood. The technical debate about murder, in my opinion, is a moot point. No, we know this, that when abortion is performed, life ceases. Abortion kills a human being. I believe this, that from the moment of conception, human life is formed. I believe it's an indisputable scientific fact. This was admitted, in fact, by one of the presidents of Planned Parenthood in the 60s, Alan Guttmacher. You see, he resisted full-fledged, full-born abortion, if you will. He said it might be implemented in certain instances, but he was mainly for birth control and contraception. And the reason for this, he said, is because, quote, I don't like killing. Unborn lives are innocent human beings, and I believe unborn lives are innocent persons. The Bible condemns the shedding of innocent blood. In Proverbs, it says, the Lord hates the shedding of innocent blood. It's an abomination to him. Now, I understand that those that do not believe that the fetus is a person would say, then, this isn't the shedding of innocent blood. But if the fetus is a human being and is a person, it is the shedding of innocent blood. I know that when it is talking about child sacrifice in the Old Testament, that it's not talking about in the womb, usually. But widespread, unrestricted abortion, simply because a woman chooses to do so, and that is largely what we have in our nation, or we have had, widespread, unrestricted abortion, I think, is analogous to what was happening when Israel then entered Canaan with the pagan tribes. And then what happened? Israel began to practice the same things in northern Israel. They polluted their land by child sacrifice, and they kindled God's wrath, and it led to their destruction. I understand that's not in vitro, but I do believe that abortion is parallel to that, the shedding of innocent blood. I believe that children are a gift from God. That's scriptural. There's no question about that. What does that mean? Children are a gift from God. They're not just a biological result of procreation. Children are a gift from God. They're not just a choice that a woman makes or even a man makes. Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, the psalmist says. So how do we respond then to the progressive arguments? Does the Bible mention abortion? Well, when they say no, that's a specious argument from silence. The Bible doesn't say Trinity. 
The Bible doesn't say soul competency. The Bible doesn't say congregational polity. The Bible doesn't explicitly say that money laundering is wrong. The Bible doesn't say explicitly that identity theft is wrong. I know it's thieving, and you can make that construction, but it doesn't address that issue. There are many things that the Bible doesn't speak explicitly to, but the principles are embedded in the commandments. The Bible does oppose killing of human life and the shedding of innocent blood. It does address abortion. The two biblical passages that are used by some pro-choice advocates, I think, are misused. The passage from Exodus, that is, that a woman has more value than the fetus. Listen to the passage and see what you think. If men struggle with each other and, and strike a woman with the child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. You see, it doesn't distinguish between the fetus injury or the woman injury. But if there is any further injury, and it doesn't say whether it's to the fetus or to the woman, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, lex talionis. There's no distinction here between the two. There is nothing to substantiate here that the Bible values the life of the mother more than the life of the unborn child. What about drinking water, that is the bitter water, to prove infidelity? There's no mention in this passage of the woman aborting her child. You see, if she's guilty, her stomach will swell up and her thigh will then uh, dwindle and she will be cursed. That means I think she will be infertile. If, however, she's innocent, she will not be cursed and she will be able to continue conceiving and having children. It has nothing to do with abortion. It has nothing to do with miscarriage at all. It's misrepresented. So the passages that they do find to address abortion do not do it. What about the social arguments? Justice. Justice for women to make their own decisions. I ask the question, what about justice for the unborn person and the right of the human being in the womb? You see, they cannot choose life or death. They cannot appeal to courts of justice for their rights. So it is our responsibility to defend their rights. What about freedom? Yes, there is genuine freedom in Christ, John 8. This comes from knowing the truth. It also comes from obeying the truth revealed by Christ. His truth makes us free from the slavery to sin. It doesn't make us free to sin. With his freedom comes responsibility to do what is the right thing, not just what the law says is legal. Just because something is lawful doesn't make it right. How many times have we said that? But Paul goes on to say just because something is lawful, it doesn't make it profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. I know that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. I know that states then will follow on and they will make laws that legalize abortion. The law that permits abortion does not necessarily make it right in all circumstances. And then finally, the logical arguments, the right to privacy. You see, this is a private and personal choice, one would say. I would say this, not every personal choice is strictly private. Personal choices affect other people's lives, and there is no personal choice that affects other lives more profoundly than when one chooses to extinguish the life of an undefended 
in the womb. And autonomy, control of one's body, the argument of the temple of the Holy Spirit needs to be read in full context. Yes, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Mine is too. The body of every believing woman is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But listen to what Paul says. Oh, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Yes, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but it is not our own. We're accountable to God to glorify Him in our bodies. And let me ask this question. Is abortion really the best way to glorify God with one's body? So let me make some application. I think this means this. We must clearly, as Paul told us last week in 2 Timothy, be responsible to the Word of God to rebuke, to exhort, to reprove, and to teach with patience and and, and instruction. We need to stand for what we understand the Bible to say on this issue. We also need to advocate for the right of unborn innocent persons, and I say persons. They cannot defend themselves or appeal to courts of law. They're unborn persons for whom God has a destiny and a purpose and a plan from the womb, and I think we need to defend that. At the same time, we need to minister with compassion and love to everyone that is involved in the discussion and the implementation of this issue. There are victims of wrongful acts that invite abortion, like rape and incest. And I'm not going to get into this morning about the differentiation and the different levels of the laws. The Bible generally speaks against the killing of life. I understand their mitigating circumstances. We need to minister to those that are scarred by sinful choices. If a woman has chosen to abort, she must carry that burden and responsibility the rest of her life. And we need to, and I do this morning, and we all should, if there's anyone who is listening to this this morning, that carries the burden and the guilt of that decision. God loves you. God gave His only begotten Son to pay for your sin. And He will forgive you. He is a God of love and mercy. He forgives all sin. He is faithful and just to forgive all sin if we repent. Those scarred by sinful choices, we must come alongside them and encourage them. We should encourage and support those who courageously make choice to give birth. For you see, that is a choice as well. I think we need to seek to relieve the oppressed. If, in fact, we do live in a chauvinistic society still, if, in fact, women are oppressed, if, in fact, people do not have their rights, we must stand for them so that they will not be discriminated against, regardless of what the issue is, whether it's a gender issue or whether it's a racial issue or whether it's an issue of their having a right then to be the person God has called them to be. We need to care for those and feel for those that are marginalized, forgotten, 
oppressed and discriminated against. We must listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 25. We must do what he says to minister to those that are the least of our brethren among us. And let me close with this. We must, friends, we must stop polarizing this in America. This is not ultimately and fundamentally a political issue. This is a moral and spiritual issue. It should not be Democrat versus Republican. This is a spiritual issue. It should not be a feminist issue. Patricia Heaton, everybody loves Raymond. You know the wife? She's a feminist, but she works in an organization called Feminists for Life. She believes in the protection of life and opposes abortion. It's not just a feminist issue. It should not be polarized into pro-choice or pro-life. It ought to be making a choice for life. And we need to commend and honor mothers in the most difficult of circumstances who choose life. And I do. I hesitate to mention this, but I will. In the spring of 1950, I commend a 17-year-old mother Seventeen years old, been married two years. The doctors told her that if she carried this child full term, she would die, and she would certainly not deliver a healthy, living boy or girl. Back then, they didn't know whether it would be a boy or a girl. I commend her for immediately walking out of that doctor's office when he went to make an appointment for her abortion. I commend her for praying for seven more months until he was born. I am probably not all that different than some of you out there. There may have been a point in your mother's life when she was told that you were not viable as my mother was told I was not viable. And yet you're here. It takes great courage to do what Jesus said. When the difficult decisions in life come and we choose to die to self and take up our cross and follow him and be obedient to his truth, we should be commended. And I commend those mothers who have done so. You know, the reason that we can be forgiven of whatever sin it is, including abortion, is because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He allowed him to be sacrificed. He allowed him to be put to death, not in vitro, but as a full-grown man, to shed his blood so that we can be forgiven because our sins have been paid for. And for this, I give thanks that the Father loved me and loved you that much. There is nothing that we can do, nothing we can think, nothing that we can plan or orchestrate or do in a sinful way that God cannot forgive. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 
926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.